Someone locked it on me. That was really bad. Um, that almost crashed, and I almost crashed. So anyways, thank you so much for being here today. My name is Chris Cosi. I'm lead pastor of Encounter Church, and today we're going to continue a series that we started um, a few weeks ago, one that's just been kind of percolating that as we've gone through the pandemic, as we've navigated some of the catalytic seasons that we've navigated, I don't know about you, but I've realized that like pandemic months are a lot like dog years. It's like every five days is the equivalent of like seven years of your life. Um, you know, I had hair, I had beautiful hair before the pandemic and I had no gray. I mean, it's just, this is what it did to me. Um, I used to look like The Rock and um, it's been devastating actually. So I'm sure you've probably experienced some of the same effects from the pandemic. But one of the things that's probably been the most difficult for me is in some ways when this crisis hit, I thought, man, this can be a moment that the American church can really shine. And as it played out, as it fast forward, and as news coverage and responses, um, you have to know, like, I'm a student of history. And so um, in every, almost every pandemic, almost every kind of major moment in history where there's been something devastating like this, where the church physically, the people of God were present, um, there has been this amazing movement that happened along with it. And arguably, this is one of the first times in church history where there wasn't as much. It was kind of disappointing, quite honestly. And so that kind of began um, a lot of private reflection about, um, okay, I'm a pastor. I can't, I'm not responsible for what other people are doing, um, but I'm responsible for this church and what we're going to do and how we're going to lead and how we're going to love and what is going to be kind of the headline that gets written in the decades that follow. And so, so much of what we're moving into, what you're going to hear about in the next couple of years, some of the dreams that we're currently engaged in, really came out of, um, man, the church is meant to make a greater impact. So one of the series that was being written in the process was this one, Like Stars in the Sky. And it was really meant to kind of give you an insight, a little bit of like, hey, here's, here's kind of my promise to you as a pastor of this church, what this is going to look like, how we're going to leverage our lives to make a difference, and how I want to partner with you to help you leverage your life to make a difference, because you get one. That's it. And, um, and the pandemic has taught us it's too short to waste and to drift through. And so one of the things, kind of as a disclaimer, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you've heard me say this every week, but I'm mindful of how many new people, um, over the last two months, we've had probably about 40 people who have never been to this church, who've walked through the doors, um, and people who watch online every single week are brand new. So I don't want to take for granted that this is kind of your place, your, your kind of regular Sunday rhythm, and most of the messages that we as a church produce, that most of the messages that I teach, tend to be um, very kind of practical, regardless of where you're coming from religiously, um, because I, I didn't have a strong faith growing up either. Um, I want to be mindful of that journey that perhaps you're on, and so a lot of times I want to help you have handles to maybe even test out the faith, even if you're not sure about the faith. And what's been unique about this series that I give this disclaimer for every week is, um, hey, you're going to hear some family insider talk, right? Every, all of us knows the difference between sitting in the living room when there's guests over and the house is clean and everything is like perfectly arranged 
and everything looks great and grand. No one knows the tension you have with your teenager. No one knows about the dirty socks that you just threw into the closet, right? But when you're with family, all of those things are really glaringly obvious. And so this is meant to be a family talk that regardless of where you are in the faith journey, you're listening in on what Christians should look like, live like, and act like. And if anything, I'm helping you have ammo uh, to further point out our hypocrisy. So you're welcome. Okay. Um, so what I want to do today is build off, because I said uh, in a few weeks ago, I said there were three kind of marks of what Christians are meant to demonstrate, that we look at the world differently, that was last week, um, that we live differently, that's this week, and that we love differently, and how we engage the, the world that's around us. And so I want to take you to a story that maybe you've heard before, but only if you probably grew up in church. It's probably a story that you've never heard before if you didn't grow up in church. It comes from a passage um, in the Old Testament or the Jewish scriptures of the Bible and a book that was originally part of a two-volume set that was kind of a Chronicles of Kings um, called First and Second Kings, right? Not a lot of creativity in the naming. If you're not really sure what First and Second Kings book is like, Think ESPN 30 for 30 if ESPN 30 for 30 focused on ancient kings and what they did and didn't do about 3,000 years ago. If you can kind of block ESPN 30 for 30, then you have the book of First and Second Kings. Okay, that's essentially the essence. It's like, hey, let's take this figure, let's talk about them, let's look at their life, let's expound on the good, the bad, and the ugly, good example, bad example, and then let's move to the next one. It's like, join us next week as we look at Jeroboam. Right? I mean, this is kind of the vibe of First and Second Kings. So today we're going to look at a passage that is um, right at the beginning of the second volume of the book of Kings called Second Kings chapter 5. Now, uh, I've already preloaded this in the message notes inside of our app that we've created for you, and it's free. Um, unlike all the other apps on your phone, we're not tracking you. We don't care where you eat at. We don't care where you get gas, and we're not selling that to anyone to make money, okay? That's our promise to you. So you can download that at EncounterChurch.com forward slash app. Uh, you'll find the Bible passage already loaded in the message notes because I want you to be able to engage. Um, I want you to be able to read along and, and, and kind of process through this passage today. So it begins with these words of how we can live differently. Um, now, Naaman, who's going to be the central character in this story that we're going to briefly touch on today, was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier. So this, the story begins with an introduction to Naaman, who reads like a really impressive individual. Right? He was the commander of the army, an army that had been devastating its enemies in that period of history. He was a great man in the sight of his master who was the king. And he was highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory. Now, here's the thing just to know theologically to help you understand this passage. This is not an endorsement when it says the Lord had given victory to Aram. This is not an endorsement that God was kind of like orchestrating. This comes out of the fact that Israel had a really, the Jewish people at the time had a really firm foundation theologically that what ultimately happened, God was in charge. And so what you have to realize is the victory that this nation had had was actually defeating Israel. 
So this is a theological statement that, look, while things were bad for us in Israel, we believed God was still in control and was on the throne. So that when we read this, especially as like 21st century American readers, we would say, oh, clearly God wanted them to win, or clearly God was the kind of the victorious one, but that would not have fit very well in their theological box. They understood God was in charge of everything, and that circumstantially that he was greater than no matter what we went through. And we find out that he was a valiant soldier. So, I mean, this guy is a little bit like the Braveheart, but he wins, okay? Like, there's actually this amazing kind of charisma that this guy has, and we find out that he had leprosy. Now, it's not exactly leprosy. The English translators put leprosy in there because um, they called everything leprosy in that period. If you had a skin disease, actual technically what would be diagnosable as leprosy didn't actually get really discovered until about 400 years after this moment that we're currently in, in Egypt. Um, but as a general rule of thumb, there was a certain skin disease that was the generic term. And so when the English translators were translating this, um, most of us are not dermatologists, and so when you hear skin disease, you don't like, oh, well, which one? There's like seven or eight of them that's common throughout. It's like, let's just say leprosy, and everyone knows it's not something you want. Like, okay, that sounds like a great idea. So that's how it's leprosy, okay? It's probably not actual leprosy, which is a horrible disease, right? I would never encourage you to Google that because you will not sleep well tonight. Um, but it was a reality in the ancient world. This is... Um, the reason I think it's not leprosy is that um, he would not have been able to be a valiant soldier and commander had he had leprosy. Leprosy was a very debilitating physical skin sickness disease. And so um, he had something that was very obvious, though, that when they oftentimes would use this word, it was a, a word that would be used in other contexts around immaterial things for splotches and stains. So when you met Naaman, it was obvious something was wrong. When you met him, you clearly knew something's not right with him. Now, the story builds. It says, now, bands of raiders, so his army, had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. So not only have we been introduced to Naaman, Naaman's wife, but now there is an unnamed servant girl who's in the house. And this is where the story starts to pick up. This little servant girl had been taken from her home. When it says she'd been taken captive, what that typically meant was these band of raiders would come in, sometimes at night. You're sleeping in oftentimes what were straw-type hut houses or maybe some type of kind of like dirt turned into mud kind of uh, structure. They would come in, they would burn the villages to the ground, um, they would kill all the men, and they would take the women back with them. And any valuables, animals, metals would often be taken back too, right? This is not, this is not a free vacation. This little girl, whatever her name is, she's probably 10 to 13 years old, and she's watched um, her father be killed, She's watched her older brothers, if she had any, be slaughtered. And she's taken by people she doesn't know to a land that she's never been. I, that's devastating. You and I, fortunately, don't have a box for that. 
she knows that she's never going to see her family again. And what happens to her? Well, she's taken back, and she's forced to become a slave and a servant to the very man, to the wife of the very man whose army had did all those things that now she's haunted with when she sleeps at night. Right? So you feel the weight of just the first two sentences. What would you have done? I mean, I, I think I'd have probably been all kinds of devious. Bring me some food. Oh, I'll bring you some food. You know, take care of this. Oh, I'll take care of that. What would you do? How would you treat them? How would you talk about them? Probably not very good, right? And yet, what happens? She said to her mistress, Naaman's wife, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Now, I wanted you to understand who this little girl is and what has been done to her. Because the challenge when we read the Bible sometimes is we're reading it after it has happened, and we miss the moment in between. I see this with my daughter. We just celebrated, and I say celebrate is kind of a weird word, but we kind of commemorated, like as a nation, remembered 9-11. And so when she hears 9-11, it's a, a kind of a series of events. This happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened, and then this happened. What she doesn't have is what you and I lived through that day when the plane hit, curiosity. Then the building fell. This what just happened. Another plane, another building, the Pentagon. I mean, you remember how terrified we were that day? And the in-between of what's next, what's about to happen. Like all the weights of that moment can be lost to history when it becomes a series of sentences that are read. And the danger is that we can miss the space in this and in the process miss the weight of what this passage is teaching us. And so she starts to serve the one who ultimately murdered her family. She notices that he's clearly has something wrong with him, and what does she do? She doesn't laugh at him. She doesn't ridicule him. She doesn't do things to make it worse. She actually tells her boss, the woman who is her, her mistress, right? Like, my master, if only he would go, and the prophet is a man named Elisha, if only he would go see Elisha then God would heal him. Like, this is insane. This is, I think, a picture of what people who look at the world differently, how they live differently. Because clearly, this woman's political filter was not the dominant, all-encapsulating way she saw the world. It wasn't like, Oh, well, I like you. You have the same views I do. I want the best for you. No, no, it's 
she allowed a different filter to supersede even her political filter. She allowed the way she saw the world and she saw people to shape how she treated them. Now, I don't think we understand anything about political filters getting in the way of all the other filters right now. That's not a problem that we deal with. But I've heard that it's an issue on the Internet. I've heard people struggle with that in other worlds, in other places. I heard there's whole dedicated news channels, in fact, to like kind of stoking your own political view. But that's not our problem because we're Christians. And we understand that the political filter is second to the faith filter. Because you can't divorce this little girl from who she is, where she's from, and her view of God. She grew up learning about who God was, and it has shaped how she sees the rest of the world. I mean, this is incredible. And, and watch what happens. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. That sentence is crazy. When's the last time you took the advice of a 13-year-old servant girl that you conquered her family and you, you brought her to serve your household and she gave you advice and you took that advice and went to the king of the nation and said, hey, I've been consulting some scholars, some books, some research, some Google. No, I, I was talking to my 13-year-old slave girl and this is the advice she gave me, king. I mean, I don't know what job you have. But I'm imagining if someone you didn't know, or let's just say to kind of help you con contextualize it, if a five-year-old gave you advice about how to do your job better, would you take that to your boss? And even if it was a good idea, would you tell your boss where it came from? My, my toddler made this really valid point that uh, I've been, I, actually I created a presentation because of how good it was. Here's the picture of the toddler who gave me this advice. We wouldn't do that. So what type of influence, who must this girl be and how must she have lived that this man with all of the respect and the power and the authority that he had would go in front of a king and tell her, tell him what she had told him. It's crazy. That's why I love the Bible, because if I was making up a world religion or some kind of, I wouldn't put stupid stuff like this that doesn't seem believable. Right? I, I would be like, first of all, Israel wouldn't have lost. It'd be like Naaman had came in, and he would have been smited, and the reason he had leprosy was how he came, what's up, God's people? I come to beat you up. You're not going to beat me up. We're God's people. Poof. I got leprosy. Run. Like, that's how I would have written the story. We would have won. But no, not in this one. What happens here is they lose. God's people loses to a man with leprosy and his army. And then the little girl that's taken in the captivity tells this man about the God she serves and the good that he does. It doesn't make sense. It's crazy. What she understood, something I said a few weeks ago, was that this girl had figured out how to make more than a point. She was going to make a difference. And we live in a culture right now where everybody loves to make a point. 
Everybody's got an opinion. Everyone researched it on Google and found the link that's already reinforced what they already thought, and they clicked on that link, and they read that, and they called that research. And maybe they clicked on two links that already stated what they believed, and so they really researched. But in a world that we're living in, I don't think people need more points. I think we can pretty confidently say scientifically that more points don't make things better. What does is people who are committed to making a difference. People whose political filter doesn't trump their faith filter. That it's their faith filter that's the first thing that everything passes through. And in the process, what happens is those kind of people start to shine like stars in the sky. So how do we do that? So let me give you a couple thoughts very practically. Because what this passage does is, I think, is a really good description of what a life lived differently looks like. But the challenge is, is it's really hard, one, to draw prescriptive things that we should do from it. So if you ever have sat through the 112, you know, one of the things when I teach you the Bible, um, how to understand, study the Bible, is that there are different types of passages. There are descriptive passages which just tell the story. But descriptive passages are tricky because you can't just say, okay, well, that's what I'm supposed to do. Because it's really just describing what happened. Then there are prescriptive passages, passages that are explicit, right? Do not do this. Do this. Or this is the type of embodiment of characteristics or faith. So this passage is descriptive. Like, unless you're a little 13-year-old girl whose family gets slaughtered and you're taken to a foreign nation and you just happen to serve a commander who has leprosy, this is not going to be very helpful for you. So I want to take you to a passage that's prescriptive, that puts very clearly into words what this little girl did in deeds. It's a passage that's also preloaded in the message notes. It's fast-forwarded. It's about 2,000 years after. Uh, I guess technically it's about 600 years. I'm jumping to where we are. And in that moment, Paul is writing to a group of people a letter. And in that letter uh, to this church in Philippi, he says these words. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. Now, just going to rapid fire some really practical handles for you and I to live differently. And one of the fun things I love about reading the Bible is um, Paul was a really good wordsmith. And it can be hard to miss. It can be, it can be easy to miss that in the New Testament when we read it in English. But Paul's writing this in the language of the day. And so what we read is do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Those are, right, selfish ambition, vain conceit. Those are four words. He doesn't write four words. He actually writes two words. And the first word I think is incredibly fascinating. I don't think you and I will resonate with this very much, but I think some people you know might. What he means when he says selfish ambition is the ability or the, the tendency to uh, try to appear better than we actually are. I've been told that people on Instagram actually post pictures that aren't always necessarily true representations of their life. That they're trying to appear better than they actually are. Right? They've taken that meal out of the microwave 
they sprinkled some of the grass in their yard around it, and they snapped the picture, and they're like, fancy evening dinner. Right? I mean, so that's what I've been told. I, I, don't, I don't know if that's true or not. But this is exactly what this is referring to, this tendency to try to appear better, smarter, like your kids are more together. You ever met people who, when you read their Facebook feeds, their kids look like angels, and then you meet them and you realize they're fallen angels? You're like, I don't think your, your social media feed is reflective of reality. Or they just hanging out with my favorite person on earth, and then when you meet them, they're arguing all the time? You're like, man, you wrote this like long diatribe about how much you love this person. You guys haven't even liked each other since the moment I've been with you. That's what this is. Because as humans, we waste a lot of time trying to appear better than we actually are. We waste a lot of time trying to present something to the world, to the public, that's not true about us and the private lives that we live. And this is a struggle we have. You have talked to these people, and you tell a story about a vacation and that you really loved, and they tell you about how they rented a private something on a private island. You're like, I didn't realize we were having vacation competition right now, but clearly we are, right? Or you talk about your child, and they talk about how their child is the MVP. And you're like, I didn't realize our, ki our kids were competing against each other right now. But this is a tendency. Where does it come from? It, it comes from a place of inadequacy. It comes from a place of feeling like I've got to protect my image. And here's why I think Christians don't have to worry about This is why Paul can say, do nothing out of this. It's because if you are a Christian, it wasn't because you were born into a household that took you to church. In fact, that may be the reason you're not a Christian. Because of the household that took you to a certain type of church that made you think, I am never going to church when I become an adult. Being a Christian doesn't happen because you walked in here on a Sunday morning and you decided that your calendar on Sunday mornings should have church. That doesn't make you a Christian either. In the same way that I go to Fenway and watch baseball and it's on my calendar, it doesn't make me a baseball player. What makes me a Christian, what makes you a Christian, is an intentional recognition of who Jesus is and what Jesus did on the cross. Demonstrated and put into power when he walked out of the grave. That is what makes you a Christian. An intentional choice that says, God, I recognize that I am a hot mess. I recognize that my life is broken. I recognize that I am flawed, that I am imperfect. That's what makes you a Christian. I think Christians should be able to own their junk easier than anyone else. They're like, that was very selfish. I know. I'm selfish. Well, that was, that was kind of manipulative. I know. At my worst, I'm really manipulative. That was harsh. I know. I'm sorry. That was really harsh. Christians shouldn't have to be defensive. Why? Because I didn't become a Christian going to the cross saying, oh, Jesus, I'm like 75% good, but I need your 25 to kind of, kind of cover the gap. It's like I showed up, bent my knee at the cross, recognizing, God, I am jacked up. And it is exhausting trying to appear like I am not. You ever tried to be better, pretend you're better? It's exhausting. 
It's crippling. It's such a self-centered life. And He can call us to live with a freedom that's not consumed by trying to appear better because we recognize our hope, our security, our confidence, our love, our peace, our joy has nothing to do with what we've done. It's everything that He's done for us. And that frees us to walk in a freedom. Doesn't give us excuses to be a turd or jerk, but it does give us the ability to own up in the moments where we are. Because the second one builds off. Because what happens is if you're trying to pretend like you are, the worst thing that happens is sometimes you start to think you actually are. You ever met someone like that who actually thinks that what they're pretending to be is true? And they've selectively kind of carved out all the bad things? There's an ego. And that's, this is kind of what he's doing here. He says, rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. That C.S. Lewis, I think, nailed it brilliantly. He said, it's not thinking less like, oh, woe is me. It's not self-deprecating or self-demoralizing or self-minimizing. It's actually thinking of yourself less than you think of others. People who have embraced humility, people who have embraced the reality that they were not perfect, but Jesus was, are able to walk into relationship situations recognizing that they don't have it all together, but there is a God who holds them together. And in the moments, they don't have the fear, they don't have the, the self, like, oh. Remember when you were a middle schooler? And you were convinced when you walked in the room, everybody was thinking about you. And you were convinced everybody was looking at you and what you wore. And if you were going to a football game, how you dressed mattered because everybody at the football game was going to notice what you were wearing. You remember that? It's as if somehow when you walked in the room, they all stopped and they took note of what you had on your body clothing-wise, and did the colors line up, and did the earrings compensate and match with the, like, the little dangly thing on your wrist, or maybe you grew up in a different area and you had slap bracelets and whatever. Like, whatever the cool was back then, you obsessed over the cool because you knew other people were looking at you, and you wanted to be cool. This idea of, like, man, I want to make sure because I know everyone's looking at me. That's, like, the worst season of life ever. And then you grow up, and if you mature, you realize actually nobody cares about you or what you're wearing. And if you hadn't gone, nobody would probably even notice. And then that, that inter- kind of interjects a whole set of other insecurities into your life. This cage that we sometimes live in, Paul is like, you don't have to live in that cage. You don't need their approval because you're already approved. You don't need their, their security because you're already in security. Because of who he is. The cross changes everything about you and me when we've been there. I'm already loved. I don't have to use this stage to get your applause. But I have watched friends of mine who weren't necessarily right on the inside. And this thing was the thing they used to try to fill up a void or a hole. 
You've watched your loved ones buy things, build things, go and do experiences, not because of those things inherently were fun, but because they were trying to compensate for something that was lacking on the inside. That if we've met him, if we understand who Jesus is and what he's done, we're in a place of security. We don't have to live that way. This is what Paul's doing, and it frees us up to do exactly what this girl did. She was able to value him, even if he didn't value her. But I think all the moments, all the little ways that she valued this woman, all the little ways that she demonstrated her faith in her life, eventually earned the respect of Naaman. And when the 13-year-old little slave girl gave life advice to him, he took it. And I think what she understood is that what C.S. Lewis actually would say again, that is a brilliant statement. He said, do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we will find one of the greatest secrets. When you're behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love them. I think for so many of us, we stand on the fence of our faith that our lives don't demonstrate this emotion because we're waiting on feelings. We're waiting on like a, a want to instead of just deciding to. I mean, if you woke up every day, you want to transform your marriage? If you wake up every day saying, you know what? I'm going to go ahead today and choose to do what I chose to do X amount of years ago. Right? Because I'm pretty sure on your vows, if you're married, you didn't say, um, you know, like, hey, oh, you're beautiful. Oh, that's amazing. Hey, let me, um, here's my commitment. I'm going to love you. I'm going to, like, we're, I'm going to cherish you. I'm going to, like, that whole little flowy amount of words that we do. Um, on those days that you actually are adorable, on the days that you actually are pleasant, on the days that you actually are likable, right? No, you made a vow. You said, hey, I choose, and it has nothing to do with them. Your vows is the commitment you made that's completely independent of who they are, right? I mean, that's, you didn't, unless maybe you had honest vows and you're like, really like once a week I'm going to do this. The other six days it's going to be hit or miss. At least two I'm going to do the exact opposite of the vows that I just said out loud. And it really all depends on you, right? I mean, none of us had that. It was a commitment because vows are the closest thing in and human life to elevate to the level of a religious commitment. So non-religious people's closest kind of box they're ever going to get to of some type of religious commitment is either going to be the moment when they have a child and there's an unspoken commitment made that for the next 18 to 25 to maybe 37 years, you're going to be a complete leech on my soul. You're going to suck all my finances and my time and my energy. You're going to make me look a whole lot older than I was when I first had you. You're going to completely rob some of the distinct joy and freedom and schedule that I had before you came into my life. Like, we don't say all that, but that's the agreement. I'm going to give you the best years. I'm going to give you my hair the color in my hair, the money I worked hard for that you don't, I'll give you all that. I'm going to give you a good night's sleep. I'm going to get rid of all that so that you can, that's a commitment. And what I love about what C.S. Lewis did here is that this is what this girl does. She, because of who she understood God to be, 
as he'd revealed himself through the Jewish scriptures. And then ultimately where Paul puts it into even more explicit context is when the God of the Jewish scriptures stepped into Israel and was named Jesus. And as he walked and as he lived and as he acted and treated, they began to realize that this is who he is. This is what God is like. And this is what God does. And this is what we're meant to do. We're meant to be people who are free to admit when we failed, who can take feedback seriously without taking it personally. Why? Because, man, I'm secure. I don't, I'm not offended. My wife can tell you, you can say some really hard things to me, and it's okay. I care more about my marriage with my wife than I do about the feelings that might get hurt in the process. I care more about sitting on the porch one day with her and what I'm convinced will be the older, better-looking version of myself as I've reclaimed that Dwayne Johnson rock body that I used to have, that I care more about that than I do about my petty emotions in that moment. Why? Because I've been freed from trying to keep my mask up. I've been freed from trying to pretend to be something I'm not. And I can stand in awe that she still loves me. And that I get to say, you know what, I'm going to love you back by putting this into action and responding to what you've just said. And in the process, we can actually look to other people, even people we don't like, even people of the other political party that we don't like, even people who watch that other news channel we don't like, and we can actually treat them better than we even treat ourselves. And that we can actually leave them and the lives they have better because we've been in it. This is a really tall order. I get it. It's not easy. This is why this is not something I'm telling you you should do if you don't know Jesus. Because it's impossible to do without him. But if you do follow him, if you do believe he is who he says he is, then this isn't suggestion, this is the expectation. This is the picture of what you and I are supposed to look like. And I'm convinced if we do it, what will happen is we will start to shine like stars in the sky and in the greater process than we can ever imagine, the final piece, then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God, the prophet, because he listens to this girl and he goes, he stood before him and he said, now I know there is no God in all the world except in Israel. What we miss sometimes is that the way we live our lives in the small ways we respond to our spouse, our friends, our neighbors, our enemies, our teenagers, to the people who have different political views than us, is that ultimately this man was introduced to the God that this little girl served because she and how she had served him. There is so much at stake. There's such an honor and a privilege that we get by being his physical representation. Because at the end of the day, I believe that there are five Gospels, five biographical accounts of the life of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and you. And most people, before they ever read the first four, they're going to have read your life extensively. And the question is, is as they read your life, do they see his life? And if they do, then there's no doubt that you and I can shine like stars.
in the sky. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for who you are, for how you use that little girl. We don't even know her name, and yet 2,600 years later, we're inspired by her. We're amazed by her, and that the reason she could live out the life she lived, the reason she could be who she was, was she was confident that the God of promises would keep his promises. She could stake her reputation. She could stake her life and her livelihood on you, that she was so sure, God, that you would show up, that she would suggest it to her slave master. So thank you for the confidence that this girl had in your promises and the way it shaped how she lived her life. I pray that you would help us in this moment to walk in that same confidence for those who are Christians, to see your promises, to see your grace, to see your forgiveness, that we would love and extend that to others. And that in the process that people would see you in us. And thank you, God, for that really insane idea that somehow you were so confident of what your spirit could do in our lives that you would allow people to get a taste and a picture of who you are, Jesus, through how we live our lives. So help us to do that. Help us to honor you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want to thank you for being